0: Christmas.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 68 of If This Is A Podcast, Know What's Christmas. Today's guest um, is one I did not have to go far to find. He's actually my next door neighbor here in America. He is English. He, like me, thought living in Laurel Canyon was preferable to living in, well, I, I won't name a part of England in case any of you get offended, but hey, let's just say Gravesend. It's nicer in Laurel Canyon than Gravesend. Anyway, um, Anthony is a polymath. Is it polymath? Good at lots of things, from fixing Macs to cooking vegan lasagnas, But the thing I wanted to speak to him about is uh, the fact that he's been a very high level advertising voiceover for many years. Um, going right up, and we discussed this at the end, right up to last year's Nike commercial the one that's done in two halves that's sort of stuck together, he is featured on that. So all the way up to the best ad of the last 12 months. But um, he's been an announcer, a stand-up comedian, um, the MC of the Royal Variety Show, but he's made a lot of commercials. So I thought it would be really interesting to have a chat with him about what happens on the other side of the glass in the recording studio, what he's thinking, what is uh, what, what would make his performance better what he's looking for, how it works from his point of view and his perspective. And so um, that's what we mainly discuss. So if you've ever wanted to know what that other person, you know when you, you switch off the talk back and you you and the engineer have a bit of a chat about something, what is, what is he thinking when he's in there? Is he thinking, this is good, this is bad, I, I don't know, I'm thinking of lunch. All mysteries will be... Uncovered and revealed in my chat with Anthony Davis. Hi, Anthony. How are you today?
0: Very well, Ben. Thank you very much.
1: Great. That's good to know. Uh, you are officially the podcast episode I've done closest to my own home. Uh, instead of the usual 5,000 miles, it's what, 50 yards maybe?
0: Not even that? I think it's about 20 yards. Yes, probably. But we live right next door each other and you are. Somebody that I might have worked with years ago, but we just will never know.
1: We'll never know. Someone listening to this might have worked with you, but we'll we'll find out. Um, So what I normally do, because I'm usually interviewing um, advertising people, is I normally ask how and why they ended up getting into advertising. But that's not to say that you aren't in advertising, but I think let's broaden it out and go how and why did you end up in the world of being a voiceover? And feel free to make that answer as long and interesting as you wish.
0: Well, that's a very good question. I've been doing voices since I was a kid. And it was stimulated by our next door neighbor, whose brother-in-law was Paul Winchell, the voice of um, Tigger, the original voice of Tigger. And he was also Gargamel and the Smurfs and Dick Dastardly. You know, Dastardly and Muttley. He worked for Hanna-Barbera. So he's played all these characters in all of these cartoons all of these animations that you will know and you'll recognize his voice, you know, straight away. And he was a big star in America in the 1950s uh, uh, as a ventriloquist as well. He also invented the artificial heart and- What? Yeah, sold the, pa- sold the patent <laughs> to a university. So he was this crazy inventor, riddled with mental health problems, who was one of the world's best ventriloquist and was a voice actor. And if you know Tigger's voice, you'll know his voice. And Tigger is now done by the guy who actually does poo since Paul Winchell died about 10 years ago. And the guy who does poo now does Tigger, but he's just impersonating Paul Winchell. It's very interesting for me. <laughs> yeah. So his brother-in-law n- lived next door to us when we were kids, and he brought him over. And so he animated my toys at home. And so I've got literally the, the, one of the greats in my front room as a, as a like, six-year-old boy. So that was really the inspiration to do voices and characters and impersonations and then of course I just had to wait until I was old enough that my standard you know received pronunciation male voice had dropped and was a commercial voice because they don't want you to do funny voices in the voiceover business it's very rare that you'd get a booking to do silly voices they want you to do variations on your on your voice and so it took me years to kind of get really serious because I just couldn't get an agent. I had this huge repertoire. I just couldn't get an agent. It was so hard. This is like oh, 20, so 25 years y- ago.
1: You've got this as an ambition. Have you, have you shaped your voice at all? Have you done anything deliberate to become more in that direction? Well,
0: I loved impersonating announcers. So, like, the voices that I was hearing on TV, I loved them. John Sachs, who, like, did the morning show on Capitol Radio, son of Andrew Sachs. I mean, Andrew Sachs had a load of commercials, but John Sachs was the voice of gladiators, and I you know, just loved his voice. It was so commanding. And so people like that really inspired me to kind of have this commercial sound. And unfortunately, when I, you know, after practicing, because you practice the whole time like a musician, constantly playing your instrument. And after a while, I actually started to sound like my commercials, in my everyday voice. So I'd like go, darling, pass the soap. <laughs> <laughs> and and you just end up becoming the or having the voice that you always wanted. So, yeah, I think I sound lovely. <laughs> but when, you're saying, when you're saying your commercial
1: voice, just to, to get the, the right use of that adjective, yep. is it your voice in doing commercials? Is that it? Or your voice... There's a difference between a commercial voice and a quirky voice. Is that what we're talking about here? I think so.
0: I mean, I think for years I couldn't get booked because my voice wasn't commercial enough. And we're talking about like in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was really finding my feet in in voiceover. And back then it was still traditional to have a kind of regular, you know, a, a brown, rich brown male voice, MVO. Mm. It's lots of fashionable now. Now they like regional voices or people who sound like they're not professional voice-overs. But I just wanted to sound like the most commercial voice-overs I could, like Don LaFontaine in America doing the movie trailers. Oh, yeah, You know, he was the... He was the benchmark. So you want to sound as good as you can sound. The fact that the industry has no call for it anymore is not the point. <laughs> so, and then I started to get work initially in children's products. So I worked for Hasbro and Mattel. And I picked started, I was like the first British voice of Action Man commercials. They'd always used American voices for Action Man. and And so to do those types of TV ads, and it all became about TV ads. And then for for the next twenty years, I was just doing all the TV ads all the time, and it was just a dream come true. But you know, unfortunately, the downside to that is that you do sound like the Calgon man, <laughs> even when you're brushing your teeth with Calgon. Um. So hang on, you said you you had difficulty
1: finding an agent and then you broke, was there a point where it broke for you? I mean, I don't just mean getting into the the toys and the kids stuff, but what went from I'm not getting hired at all to now I'm at last getting hired?
0: Well, the way I got the agent was I sent tapes, I made so many tapes, I mean, that's all we did in the olden days, we just made tapes, (laughs) like making mixtapes for a girlfriend. But you were making voiceover tapes for agents and you'd send them to, you know, Yakety Yak and Hobsons and all the, all the big voice talent agencies, send them all around. And I just heard nothing. They would just never reply to you. So eventually I started ringing, you know, like doing follow-up phone calls. And uh, the way I, it worked for me was I phoned one agency called Rhubarb. And I go, hello, it's Anthony Davis, the voiceover and impressionist. I wondered if you got my tape. And they went, oh, no, we don't think we got your tape. Are you an impressionist? And I went, yeah. And he goes, oh, we actually need an impressionist right now. Can you do Michael Caine? Yes, I can. So he goes, okay, you got the job. (laughs) Literally, (laughs) I got booked by the agent that I had never been represented by because at that moment in time, he just needed a Michael Caine. And um, I ended up doing Michael Caine for... Two decades, because everybody wants a bit of Michael Caine, and Michael Caine doesn't do anything other than the movies. But have you, when you watch Rob
1: bryden do Michael Caine, are you familiar with? The,
0: and, and he's getting a bit older, and he's getting in the back of the throat.
1: Do you, you, you go, yes, i realize Michael Caine's changed over twenty years.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it would be remiss of me not to have an ageing Michael Master Caine. Master Bruce. I mean, my favourite Michael Caine is is educating Rita Michael oh. Caine, where he goes, drug. Of course I'm drunk. You can't expect me to teach this when I'm bloody sober. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everyone else does a very poor, you're only supposed to blow the bleeding doors off, which I won't even attempt right now, because no. I'll ruin it.
0: Because the voiceover police will show the up. The voiceover police will show day. up
1: and I'll get a little red dot on my forehead. Um, okay, so you, you've begun, and you're now in the world of recording in studios for ads. Is that, is that how it's gone? Were you familiar with that world before?
0: I I knew that Soho was like the mecca for voiceovers, for commercials. And I knew of these characters like Enrightel that were just cleaning up, or they were walking the streets of Soho and just popping in. And they were doing three or four, five or six ads a day. And that was the dream. It took me a while to get to that point. I mean, the most I ever did in a day was maybe three or four, but even so. And then, like the Pret a Manger at the bottom of Wardour, became you know on the corner on the corner of Brewer and Wardour, oh, yeah. became our the voiceover kind of meeting point where all the voice actors were just like sitting there. We'd pile in there at nine a.m. and wait for our agents to ring, and then they'd be like, "Right, you're going to Silk, you're going to Angel, you're going to Grand Central," and then we'd all like peel off. It was, re- I mean, there was amazing times really to be able to do that, and just going into these. I mean, there used to be, here's one of my earliest memories was a studio in Broadwick Street and it was called Space. Mm. Do you remember it? I have worked at Space, yeah, back in the day. It went bust. Yeah, that was not my fault. But the thing about Space was, because I had always been a recording engineer at home, you know, writing and recording and editing and producing my own stuff, as a lot of voice actors are. So, I knew that like 99% of the equipment in Space was not plugged in. (laughs) Well, actually, it was powered, but like it, it was in bypass. So, like, all the lights would flash, but it wasn't going onto the recording. Oh,
1: <laughs> and the, the clients obviously crashed.
0: didn't know that. They just were like, wow, look at all this <laughs> stuff. Do you remember that place? I mean, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was, and that was one of my very earliest memories of, like, making it, getting into a proper studio. And space was just like, it, for those that don't know, it was like, they tried to make it look like the inside set of Alien. So there'd be like walkways. And you were, you were on the International Space Station for a for, for recording, basically. Lovely. And it, it was very exciting. And then, yeah, and then like Grand Central, I used to be in all the time. And, you know, you get to know some of the engineers. There was a very good, oh, what was its name? The recording engineer was called Dan Gable. And he, was, he became like one of my best buddies because we met over a client that couldn't make their mind up. So like, I'm one side of the glass, he's the other side of the glass, the client's over there. And like, the client's just like, cannot make a decision. And me and Dan are like making eyes at each other. You know, we became bonded for life. Yes. And I actually spoke to him this morning, like 20 years later.
1: And, you, and it's, still, it's still a moment.
0: And well, it's just because the recording engineer and the, and the voice talent obviously are working together. Yes. And the and the client is the third person in the relationship, so it's very it's you know the symbiosis of this is very interesting. And when you're
1: saying the client, are you saying me? Because when we say the client, we mean the bloke who who is from Sainsbury's and is sitting there going. No, you
0: are my client. I'm the client. You you the creative director yeah. or, or is is my client, and then your client. Is, is my the, client's
1: is client. client. It's client's client. My client's client is <laughs> my client. Well, that's funny because we, you, you know, you sit there and you, we whinge about clients and then you unwittingly become a client. Mm. Because we're sitting in there in the studio. And this is what I, I would like to get into a, a bit more. Because for anyone listening who's in the world of advertising, um, let's go through the looking glass and find out what it's like on the other side of that recording booth. When we're sitting there saying inane crap, like, could you say it with a smile this time? Or could you put a little laugh into the word, you know, toilet or whatever it happens to be? Um, do you think you're going through not the motions but you've been there before you're like yes I know what to do here and this is how it happens and are you rolling your eyes or are you going hey it's just part of the job and
0: I'll get on with it professionally I think all of those things depending on how many jobs you've had that day you know or how late in the day it is because sometimes like if you get a a a 9am booking, they're never before 9am but if you get the 9am booking your voice is tired like you haven't Mm. really woken up so you don't really you're not you're never going to intervene on a a. 9am booking because you're just like but the reality is for a voiceover artist you want to just learn to shut the hell up when you're not being asked to speak professionally yes and for someone like (laughs) me who's also a producer and an editor and a writer that's kind of difficult sometimes because you know you've got the answer to the vernacular or the, or the grammar or whatever it is that they're working on, but it's not your job. You know, your job is to just read aloud what they've written for you. And whereas there'll be other jobs where maybe the client isn't present and it's just you and the engineer, that's when, as a voiceover with additional skills, you can come into your own because you might be a better writer than the engineer. So then you'll work on something together, and then you can be a bit more creative. But I always felt that when there was the client and the client's client and the client's client's client there, I, I, you know, it's all about being efficient. It's about being pleasant. Sometimes you know they might want to hear a couple of funny voices because they want to get value for money, so you give them a little bit of value at the beginning of the session, and then you just do as you're told. And also, try and get it right the first time, like... I've always found, and you'll know this from working with actors where you employ actors, because I was never an actor who was a voiceover. I was a voiceover artist. Like That was my profession. So, say, was, is, I'm still available for hire. Um, if I did like a double header with, a, with an actor where they'd say, oh, this is so and so and they're going to be playing the other part and we're going to record you together, I'd be like, great. But the actor was always so high maintenance compared to like working with other voiceover artists because the actor would need to kind of go through the whole process finding the character and being the and 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 they'd always get it wrong whereas the voiceover artist would just like get it right first time and didn't give a toss about the character because it's your job firstly to sell you know i always thought voiceover voiceover commercial voiceover is a selling job so when i go are you paying too much for car insurance it's a genuine sales question so it's not like The olden days where it would be like, are you paying too much for car insurance, which was more of a statement. These days, more fashionable would be, are you paying too much for car insurance? Right. And it's that subtlety of like, can you sell? And yes, you have to be a really good actor. It's a bit like comedians who I think are better actors than actors. Mm. Because to do comedy requires a a huge uh, an even greater discipline over and above acting. You've got to act natural like you've never said it before. But you've also got to be funny. And it's material you've probably written yourself. Well, that's much harder than like just being sent a script and a costume and being told where to stand, someone shouting yeah. action, and having learned the line you do it. And, and voice acting is it's kind of similar. You, know, you have to be very self-sufficient. But the efficiency, if the client has only booked an hour, you don't want to go over. And most of that hour is going to be the client faffing around waiting for a script to be sent over from Germany or be, yes. have it approved by the client of the client. And so, yeah, I, I always felt like just do what they need and get the hell out of there. They also like to know that you're busy. So I'd always say like, <laughs> if my agent had said, look, it's an hour with an hour run on, yeah. I'd be like, well, this is great because this is potentially double bubble. Yes. Well, that's when you slow it down a little bit because you'd like to get into the second hour because it doubles your money. But if it's just like three words, you're never going to get a second hour out of that. So you might as well just be really efficient and do the job and so, yeah, I mean, the, the the client, if you get on with the client, you will have a really fun experience. It should be fun.
1: Yeah, and so going through that process, just get, get into the weeds of it a little bit. Um, so you, you've done your pre you've arrived at, at Jungle, wherever it happens to be, Yeah. and this is the, the first time you're seeing the script, it's come off the fax machine or wherever it happens to be, and you're, you, you shuffle in there, and is, you're sort of settling, that, that kind of thing? Is that the whole...
0: Yeah, I mean, again, like, if there are actors there, they'll be reading the script. If there are voiceover artists there, the, the script comes off the fax machine and they're not looking at it. <laughs> right you you know because like part of the pleasure of being a full-time voiceover is your sight reading skill you know you, you it becomes like a game for us because you know it's not very difficult to read one line at the end of an ad yeah so I always felt like if you do too much work on it in advance it's not going to be as good by the time you get in there like I really want to start on it when I get in there with them So, yeah, you have a little look at it and just check that there are no kind of Polish words or something that you're going to struggle with. But no, you don't start working on it because it's a waste of time because the client's going to give you a completely different brief to what you think anyway. So you might as well, and often they'll play you a guide. And, you know, often if the guide, which has been recorded by someone in the office, is for time, but it's also slightly for style. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of times where I've gone, you know, I think you should just use the guide (laughs) because actually it sounds really good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the script is everything. If it's well written, it's much easier to deliver.
1: But you if, must have had to deliver scripts that, uh, in all modesty, from my creative brethren, aren't very well written or might not fit in 30 seconds or whatever. Do you, and you said you you have to resist the urge to be the person who fixes that or whatever. And, and Do you just sit there and wait for them to go, oh, God, we've got to cut five words out of this and kind of just... Or do you, do you put your hand up and go, if we cut out the word chicken, we could?
0: Never cut out the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my golden rule, because I'm quite a confident, loudmouth person, an extrovert person in an introvert's body, in the body of a middle-aged woman with um, transitioning. transitioning, I have to force myself to keep shtum. So yes, in answer to all your questions, yes. I would there w- there would be loads of opportunity for me to intervene but it's not my job. And that's the thing about the entertainment business, media, television, radio, whatever you choose to call it. Everyone has a job. A bit like on a movie set. You know? If if the if the prop is in the way of the actor's foot, the actor's not going to touch the prop. Mm. The props guy comes and moves the prop. Right. And it's the same in the voiceover suite. You do what you have been paid to, to to do, to show up. And I always loved the creative directors who were already half cut come like 11 a.m. sessions. <laughs> they, they would just come in, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. And then like their person would direct the voice session and then the, 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 the creative would like look up from his sandwich and go, it's shit. <laughs> Let's start again. Like uh, their interventions would be very minimal, yes, but they'd be total and final.
1: Yeah, they would. So the the
0: hierarchy, Mm. and I always found it quite interesting. And it was very gendered. You know, the creative director was invariably a man who'd been in the business for a long time, and was a little bit scary. And then the people working under him were invariably female, and it, it was very gendered but so's voiceover. I mean, why the hell were male voices advertising almost every damn product? Yeah. It was just... And in that period, when I started to get busy doing, you know, household products and commercial, you know, the Calgons and the Admiral Car Insurance and these kind of very everyday, you know, Twix, my favorite chocolate. I've just had a of Twix, course. actually. You are I mean... For me, like uh, doing the Twix commercial for me was like a dream come true. It's always been, since I was a kid, my favorite chocolate. (laughs) So if you choose to work in voiceover and you get to be the voice of your favorite chocolate, and I was the voice of Twix for about three years on all TV advertising, it was a dream come true. And so, and and I may have told you this story previously, but I'll tell it again, I'd got paid to do uh, Peter Grant had done a version of. Um, uh, a, what was that very famous song? Imagine me and you, I do, I think about you day and night. So Peter Grant had re recorded the original. Was the original Frankie Valley or something? Maybe. Maybe. And Happy Together. Happy Together. And it's two Twix on a conveyor belt. Oh, right. Right? And it's about, this is just before they branded Twix. Was it Roundtree that did Twix? But they branded them left and right. Okay. That had never been done before. This right. became like a whole thing. And so they, the Twixes go through the conveyor belt, and they come out, and they get pressed into the packaging. And then the woman takes a bite under the tree. And then you hear me go, With delicious biscuit and caramel, it's Twix. Two great-tasting bars, happy together. So that's the commercial. And it was a great ad and it ran for ages. And I got very well paid for it. And then I got being brought back in a year later. And I had to record a new end line, which was with delicious biscuit and caramel, it's Twix, one great tasting bar after another. But they didn't want me to re record the first half of it because that would have been too much work. <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> so I then, a year later, had to voice match with delicious biscuit and caramel <laughs> and then just drop in with, it's Twix, one great tasting bar after another or whatever. And so it's like, that wow, so you know, crazy. it just seems so crazy. <laughs> but that was the kind of stuff that you would have to learn how to do to yeah. be able to voice match yourself from a year earlier. And they would say, oh, we'll play you a bit of it so you can hear. Oh, thanks very much.
1: Yeah, I would not understand why you wouldn't just give the person the whole line. Then everything's good. Anyway, anyway. Um, what, I, what I'm interested in also, from, again from my point of view, is what are the most and least helpful pieces of guidance that you're given by a client? You know when they say things. When, when we say things like, could you say it with a bit of a smile and whatever, does your heart sink or do you go, I've, I've been here before, I know what you're looking for, I'll, I can give you that, I can translate that into, into my voice.
0: If you're working with, with experienced people who obviously are into it and know what they're doing, then of course any direction is helpful. If you're with people that haven't really got a clue what they're doing and they're pretending to give you direction, which is not, you know, it's not even useful direction, they're just saying something for the sake of it, then that can be a little annoying. But I'm just grateful to have a job. I mean, genuinely, I think there is, it's so, voiceover is so competitive that the voice actor is going to be in the studio just thrilled to be there. Mm. So anything that the client says is helpful. The, 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 what's scary as a voice artist is when they turn the talk back off and talk about you <laughs> that that's when it becomes something that you suddenly your anxieties kick in and your insecurities kick in and you're like oh my god what do they say they hate it they hate it please let them say something nice and you know it, it's and then like the engineer pressed the talk back open just for a moment and goes so we'll just be with you in just a moment and you're like you're trying to listen through to trying the background to, to see you know what they're saying <laughs> and normally what they're saying is Yeah, it's fine, but you know, is the script right? It's normally just a technicality and it's never about you because they've already chosen you. Yeah. And as long as you can deliver what your demo tape is able to deliver, then because that would be the unfortunate thing. And you would often hear stories from clients saying, Oh, thank you so much, you know, because last time we booked someone who their tape was great and when they showed up, they couldn't, they didn't sound like that. Mm. Because. A lot of people that want to get into voiceover do it because they've been told they've got a nice voice. And having a nice voice is maybe 10% of the job. Being able to sell, being able to do it right, quickly, on time, shave half a second off a 30-second read, do it with the direction that weird clients might be giving. But anything with a smile is going to sound better, isn't it? So, you know, why not?
1: but that, that's that's also interesting because I, I don't know how many people listening to this have ever had to do a voiceover ever had to be on the other side of it because I mean I've d- I've done scratch reads and whatever but you're sitting there thinking if I if I uh, you know you, you're trying to get over the fact that you sound a bit weird and no one really likes to listen to yourself obviously you've, you've got over that ages ago but I find get, getting in a booth is a really uncomfortable awkward unpleasant experience if you're not used to it and Enjoying it. So the fact that there are people who are prepared for it, want to do it, are you know, if you say shave half a second off that, that's that's meat and drink for you.
0: Well, I always say this to people when they, because I used to do stand up and stuff, and they would go, I don't know how you can do that. (laughs) Be like, well, I don't know how you can sit in an office for eight hours a day. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? It's like Mm. we naturally gravitate to the things that we're good at and that we want to be good at. And so for me, a studio with headphones and a nice microphone, is my sanctuary. And I I will happily sit there all day. Um, And you know, you you become like, I like to sit, like some studios you go into and it's set up in a standing position. And then I'd say, depending on what the job was, if it was just a couple of words, then fine, I'll stand. But if it's like a a couple of paragraphs, or worst case scenario, you'll get like a pharmaceutical read, Mm -hmm. which would be, Reams of quite technical delivery i'd be like, I really think I'd like to sit down you know and i 'd always have a joke I'd say like i didn't choose this job because it was a standing job <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> you know to be sit- seated and comfortable, and I also think my voice sounds better when i'm sitting. Some people think their voice is better when they stand standing's fine for radio plays and scenarios yeah. where there's there's multiple performers and you've got a few more like physical actions but Really, if it's just N-lines, MVOs, the other thing I'd like to talk about, because I think it's really interesting, is, is um, legals, mm. because a few of us in the voiceover scene were very good at doing fast reads, and contrary to the popular belief, you really can't speed them up. You can speed them up a bit, but they need to be really fast in the first place. Right. So I would end up being booked because I was able to do, say, a character voice in the commercial or a couple of character voices. So I used to do like um, Citroen commercial vehicles, used to get booked for them all the time. So I'd be like talking like that, yeah, the Citroen commercial vehicle. Yeah, I'm just trying to reverse this van into this space. And then I'd also get the job or in the same session, I'd be like the new Citroen commercial vehicle starting at 20, 24995 or however it would be. That's more of an American delivery. But then you'd also have to do the legals. Wrong commercial, but I might say, your home is at risk if you don't keep up repayments on another of loan. Yeah. Um And, you know, they were just so much fun because it becomes like a game. It's like a, like a parlor game where everyone's sitting around trying to say the line as fast as possible. <laughs> your home is at risk if you don't keep up repayments on a mortgage or other loan secured on it. Terms and conditions apply. See local press for details. In the West End and across London from Friday. <laughs> Can help slimming, but only as part of a calorie-controlled diet. And those, those things are, it's just fun, isn't it? You know, it's just so stupid. And as you know, like, legals became more and more detailed as time went on. Oh, yeah. So Especially like in it. the 90s, late 90s, and early 2000s, it would just say, terms and conditions apply. Yeah. <laughs> then you'd fast forward 15 years. This could give you stroke, heart attack, and you'd be like, okay.
1: There's definitely someone listening to this who I know who always said to me, why can't you just say terms and conditions apply? And that's everything. Because Mm. here's the other thing, no one's listening to that going, oh, hang on, oh, Eight point three percent APR rather than eight point. Oh right, I've got that. Okay, now I know uh, I'm yeah. not going to get that credit card. No one's actually listening to those things anyway, and you're reading them as fast as you can.
0: And because regulation changed, the ASA or whoever it was that was looking over those things, just you know, it's all litigation protection and stuff like that. But again, that so that just becomes part of the job, being able to do. And if you can do the character in the ad, the the male voiceover at the end and then the legals, clients love you because they don't have to pay one fee. I was about to say, you ought to get paid
1: three times, really, no, shouldn't you? You should. don't.
0: I, I, I don't. I <laughs> don't care. It's nice to have a job. But I mean, the point is that you get, you know, you're more likely to get booked because you're versatile. And that versatility is very helpful.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because you're talking about being able to do three different kinds of voice there. But we were also talking earlier about the fact that there was a sort of, there was a fashionable, there was a voice. That was fashionable. Maybe to be the um, MVO at the end, the guy who kind of sums it up, and maybe in a certain genre of commercial, maybe the Calgons or maybe the you know the Twixes. There is a certain voice that fits that. And so, do, do, do those? Does that does that kind of voice go in and out of fashion? Is there, like you said, people going, oh well, maybe you need a regional voice or this sort of thing, that sort of thing. But is there a central sort of? Um, I feel like I'm I'm listening to maybe a Capital Radio DJ or something like that. That, that always cuts through, that always works.
0: I don't think that commercial voice that you're talking about, radio voice, will ever go out of fashion. Right. There'll always be a call for it, but it has become, in more recent years, more of a pastiche sound. Mm. So like Peter Dixon, who does the X Factor voice, started to pick up work doing that in commercials. And... You know, he he's doing a a pastiche in itself. Like that's not his voice. He's creating that sound, and so Patrick Allen originated that sound. Patrick Allen was was he in Emergency Ward Ten or something? I mean, he was an amazing actor for decades, and and when Channel Four started rebranding its promos, he Patrick Allen was the voice of that. On Channel 4 had that very kind of authoritative sound. And then Patrick Allen did it for a while and even did it in vision for a time for Channel 4. So you saw this really old guy like turning to the camera and doing it, which for me was a dream because, you know, I I idolized announcers. And so to see someone like Patrick Allen, whose voice we'd heard in commercials for decades, suddenly be in vision as an old man, I mean, I'm such an anorak for stuff like that. And then Patrick Allen died and Peter Dixon, who was already impersonating him a bit and getting that kind of work, kind of picked up that stuff. And then, you know, the X Factor job came and then he kind of tweaked that sound to be even more theatrical. And now over time, he's started to do it more like himself.
1: But Patrick Allen, I felt that there was a turn when he became The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer, Patrick Allen, because he was clearly being hired in a self-parody type fashion, because not only were they getting him to read you know, uh, incredibly strange stuff, but again, he was, on, he was on camera then, and...
0: I think you might be confusing Patrick Allen with Graham Skidmore.
1: It was, it was definitely, an old man. Yeah, and it was. was pro- I
0: think it was Graham Skidmore was it, that did s- the smell of Reeves okay. and Mortimer. Well, either whichever one it was, it felt like they had. Skidmore s- was the blind date guy. Yeah. Graham on blind uh, Graham. Date. Yeah. Know, yeah. yeah, and he'd be like, "Will it be number yeah. one? <laughs> the decision <laughs> is yours." And he was, yeah, and he was of the same ilk as Patrick Allen. I don't. I mean, it might have. We'll have to look it up afterwards. But this is real, like voiceover very 101, mighty. isn't yeah. it? It's very niche, but. And I got booked to do Comic Relief one year because Graham Skidmore had been booked to do Comic Relief. It was 2005. Right. And the Comic Relief live BBC One show is like a 14-hour marathon, TV marathon. And there was they'd written a blind date sequence into it that Graham um, Norton was going to be hosting with some celebrities. But it was like two-thirds into the show, so it was going to be at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And, and um, I remember getting a phone call saying, can you do Graham's voice from blind date? And I said... Yeah, pretty much. And so then I got another call to say, okay, you've been booked to do Comic Relief. And then when I spoke to Susie Applin, who's the creator of Comic Relief TV, she said, oh, yeah, we, we had Graham Skidmore booked, but we, he's so old now that we just wasn't fair to, like, to keep him up all night. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to sit, and this was one of the best jobs I ever had, actually, was sitting backstage behind the video wall that was the backdrop for Comic Relief Night. And I sat next to Richard Curtis and Emma Freud, who, she, she's a script editor, as you know, and he's a writer, director, and they are a married couple, powerhouse, creative geniuses. And I was watching them. And I was sitting there with a lip mic, you know, a famous old Coles lip mic, which uh, you know you use for commentary, um, which the BBC still use, even though the mic was designed in like 1953. And I was watching the two of them typing into the auto cue, about 10 seconds ahead of Jonathan Ross announcing it on the stage in front of the camera, standing in front Amazing. of us. So literally writing the show in real time. And then occasionally, like, Emma Freud would write on a piece of paper a number, and they'd give it to me. And then I'd hear in my ear, OK, Anthony, we're going to do a total. And then I'd read the total that she'd just given me, that she'd just scribbled down, that someone upstairs had you know, like texted her and I'd be like, they'd be like, and what's the total so far? And I'd be like, 39,474,520 pounds. Yay. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> um, so, and then I got to do this lovely comic, uh, this lovely uh, blind date sequence on, on comic relief. But that was one for me, like, do, you know, being, it was balancing the work. You see, if you worked as a BBC announcer, as I did, that, sometimes helped your commercial work as well because you became so familiar as a voice. Yes. And you became like the, sound, the soundtrack to, to the popular culture of the moment. And there was a time when I was like the voice of the BBC, you know, TV, like live events, Comet Relief and the Royal Variety Performance, um, Commonwealth Games, like big TV events. I was also the promo voice for ITV. I worked for MPU, the Net- network promo unit. So you'd be, like, doing promos for upcoming TV on ITV1. A touch of frost, Friday at 9, ITV1. That was such a great job to have. Slightly different style to the BBC. A little more drama, a little more character. Um, And then doing commercials at the same time. And, and I was on the radio at the same time as well because I was a, you know, presenter at LBC so you end up almost oversaturating yourself and I only got into trouble for this once when my bosses at LBC were really angry that I was the voice of a commercial in the ad break on the radio so i would be like you know we'll be back after the ads the ads would play <laughs> and I would be on the ads
1: but you can't choose that, that you just can't happens. choose
0: it It was just like a scheduling thing that just kind of happened but it just you know your your employers want you to be busy but they also kind of would like you to be exclusive. And yeah. that's a very interesting balance, I think. And, and you know, I didn't burn out, but I, I, I felt very blessed for. There was like seven or eight years where I was literally doing multiple media at once, and it was, it was very rewarding, because you know, voiceover is a real it's, a, it's an art form, but the hardest part of it is getting booked. And I just managed to get on a roll somehow.
1: Well, it feels like uh, what what you're kind of saying is, like a lot of careers, it's hard to get your foot in the door. Once you're in, you know, there are things that you're doing that are almost self-perpetuating that you are the guy who has done those things, that gets you other jobs, that then you are a credible person to keep employing. Um, and does that is is there a deliberate management of your career in that way? You know, you say you have an agent, but is your agent like a proper agent who's doing stuff? Going, we need to get Anthony doing more of these things or those things, or is it more of a people call you up and you're you're fortunate to get the next gig?
0: I think that stuff is all driven by chance. You know, you can have meetings with your agent and you talk about strategy, but it's all bullshit because there is no strategy. You, I mean, I got booked. I started my BBC announcing career because I randomly got selected from a bunch of voiceover tapes to be the announcer on the, on the Commonwealth Games in 2002 in, uh, in Manchester. And it was probably an intern that chose me or shortlisted me, gave it to the creative, creative, shared it around with the department and they were like, okay, let's choose him. And off the back of doing the Commonwealth Games, which coincidentally was broadcast on BBC One, but I was actually working for the games itself enabled me then to kind of get in and start doing other shows for the BBC. So I did um, uh, Eurovision, Making Your Mind Up, famously the night that Terry Wogan chose the wrong winner. I don't know if you remember (laughs) that scandal. I don't remember that. But it got down to, this is when they choose the British entry for the Eurovision Song Contest. And I, I was the announcer on the show, so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Terry Wogan and Natasha Kaplinsky. And the year later, I did it. Please welcome Terry Wogan and Fern Cotton. They, <laughs> they were just getting younger and younger, but Terry was getting older and older. And and I remember that that one year, it might have been the It was the Fern Cotton year when <laughs> Terry's in-ear talkback failed, and so. This is whether the drum roll and the winner is the british entry for the eurovision song contest is and in the his ear they say the name but he can't hear it because his talkbacks mm-hmm. failed and wogan didn't work with much talkback you know he was very much a closed talkback kind of person open or closed you know if you want to hear the gallery if you don't want to hear the gallery and he was Anyway, they couldn't get through to him. So he just guessed the one that he thought was most (laughs) likely to have won the Eurovision Song Contest entry. And unfortunately, he chose the wrong one. And that was a big... You know, it was all over the newspapers at the time. And I remember that being... It was just fun being in the studio, watching it happen. Um, But going back to your question, like, I think the... Just being... In, in that industry is a blessing because I always say like voiceover is the best job in the world because there's such little responsibility. Like you don't have to write the script. Mm. You don't have to press record. you and once, you've, once they've recorded you and you leave, you have nothing to do with it. And then they're gonna work on it and edit it and master it and, and, and so we really are required for just the smallest moment of the production process and while you guys are agonising over script in advance, we're sitting in Presmonge, eating um, Swedish meatball wrap yeah. for the third time that day. <laughs> so, so it, it, and that's why it, sometimes it can be hugely rewarding if it's like quite a difficult script and something you've had to really use your craft to deliver. Yeah. But other times it can be quite soul destroying because the line is you know you were in and out in 3 seconds and i you know i never did it for the money i did it cuz i loved the job i love mm. recording like i love getting in the new studio and cuz i love microphones and equipment so i'm like love looking at the mics seeing what kit they've got and i always like to say to the engineer i've oh, got a U87 this is going to be a good session and <laughs> and and they appreciate that cuz they know that if you know what you're doing then they don't have to do as much work you know so Because the engineer, they would always hate having to come in and like move the mic and get it in the right place. I'd always like do that for them. So it's very interesting. Oh, one thing I want to say just on this technical thing is that older technicians and engineers would put some processing into the mic for the voice actor so that you could actually hear your voice mastered. Yeah. And then younger engineers never really did that. Like it wasn't taught at engineering school anymore or something. And so you'd get a dry mic. And this makes a huge difference to a performance, a dry mic versus a processed mic. So if you want me to sound really good, give me a little bit of processing so that the mic sounds rich and characterful and I only really need to whisper. And then if I whisper, I can really like give you a, in 1974, there were 300. Like I can really get into something, yeah. But if the mic is dry, it's 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 just not as nice to do your job. Mm-hmm. And so the and if I'd say to the engineer, "Could I have some processing on this?" Oh no, we don't put any of that in. We do that afterwards. And I'd be like, "Yeah, well, there is such a thing as non-destructive recording where you have it on the input stage, but it's not going on the tape. It's just for me to hear in my ears. Yeah. Like that's yeah." So there's a little a few technical things that really help a voice, a voice artist in delivering, giving you the best performance. Right. And what,
1: what, the other thing I was going to say from our point of view is that we are often looking for the next new thing. Advertising is a very neophile industry where we're looking for, you know, we don't want to do something because someone else has used it. And yet you had a solid, long-lasting career whereby you were of a certain voice. Um, I'm wondering, does that feed? Uh, do you get cast for certain kinds of commercials in that way?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's probably more to do with the agency. Like, if the agency has used you on one brand and it was successful right. and useful, then the then that agency. And I would find that a lot of, you know, there'd be a lot of familiarity when I'd get scripts and I'd see the agency logo on the top I'd be like oh it's nice to be used by them again and it's because you got recommended in the office Yeah. Um, and then sometimes you'd be like useful if you were like a firefighter and I mean this in as much as like the, the voice of, of the Gaviscon fireman was unable to work I won't say why but he suddenly became unavailable and so I'd done some work for this agency and they were like could you test like at the end of a session on one job they were like can you do this voice go 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 this lady needs our help and fast she's suffering from heartburn and needs gaviscon i can feel the cooling and soothing already good job lads gaviscon what a feeling be like yeah i can do that voice so then i became the gaviscon fireman for two and a half years three years (laughs) <laughs> but that was all because of the misfortune of another voice actor, right, and the agency knew me, and they knew I was versatile, yeah. so they just said, "Could you replicate this guy's voice yep, and so you do a thing called a sound alike you can't do an impression because then that you know you get into the yeah. hot water there, so you just make it the same but different and you you your voice actually features
1: in what I would think a lot of us was considered to be the best commercial of last year. The Nike, I don't even know what it was called. The one where it's got a split screen. It was called You Can't Stop Us. You Can't Stop Us. But because that's not very evocative of what the thing is, the screen is split in two halves and the two halves managed to sort of become one in very, very clever ways. Anyone who to this probably knows what I'm talking about. Can you tell me now... Um, what the casting process is, is perhaps like more, more these days, and, and well, surely it's not the same as they heard your Hobson's choice, uh, Hobson's voice thing, and then said, let's get Anthony. H- how, d- how do things work in 2021?
0: Well, it's not just how they work in 2021, it's how they work in 2021 in America. Okay. Because I probably wouldn't have got a chance to even audition for the Nike commercial in England. So- beca- why, why not? Because. The talent pool here in Hollywood is is so much greater and so much higher. Like All the best people in the world are here for this type of work. So they're looking for people that are based in L.A. ideally. It's irrelevant where we are because most of us are working remotely from our home studios anyway. Yep. So um, the story with the Nike commercial was funny because I didn't know I got the job until the commercial was on. I get a phone call from my friend Ali and she's like... Um, I need to be your agent and I'm like, what do you mean? This was like on a Saturday. She was like, because I just heard you on the Nike commercial. I was like, what? I haven't done a Nike commercial. She sends me the link to the YouTube, which by this time it only, the Nike commercial had dropped at like five hours earlier and it already had 10 million hits. And it was my voice in the middle of this ad. Nike, you can't stop us. But did you know know
1: that's what you were auditioning for?
0: I didn't remember doing the audition. (laughs) let alone doing the job, and I really panicked because I thought that maybe I had auditioned for it and they had just used my audition and they had not paid me. So I then phoned my agent on the weekend, which is an absolute no-no, Of course. and I was like, what the shit's happening here? I'm on the Nike commercial. And he phoned me and he goes, look, don't worry, I know all about this, we've been negotiating on Friday. They were supposed to confirm they haven't. They said that it was right up to the point when this is gonna go live. They'll make a decision at the 11th hour, and I was gonna tell you on Monday with some good news. <laughs> and so, anyway, the ad, it, it is the, one of the best ads I've ever seen. Yep, it's an extended, it's, fantastic. it's a 90 second mm. ad, more of a viral video. Yeah. But it, and I just get to do a, like a line in the middle, which is when the pandemic changed everything Mm. with regard to sport, hence, you can't stop us. And I say something like, um, and the world has shut down all the sports events, or something. Something like that. Yeah, but it, it was fantastic. And so they, but they used my audition. You know, I recorded an audition at home. Yeah. I, I, but here in LA, I do maybe between three and six auditions a week on average. Um, and sometimes maybe three in one day. There's like you know it, mm. it's it's a full time job auditioning. Whereas in London you never audition. Like you got booked off the strength of your tape, off your demo tape, yeah. And you would just go in and do the job. There was never maybe once in a blue moon your agent would say, "Oh, could you just do a test for this?" And he'd be like, "Yes." Whereas here you go, you you do auditions all the time. You submit them. I asked my agent here once. My agent here is called v- Vox. Um, and I said to Vox, w- how many people are probably auditioning for this? Like, if I do this Nike audition, how many people are auditioning? He said, uh, you know, not that many. And I was like, well, how many's not that many? He went, I don't know, like between 400 and 1,000. <laughs> I was like, you are kidding me. Like, it's amazing I get booked for anything. But the difference here in America is that we all have, those of us that are full-time voiceovers, we have our own broadcast facilities at home. Right they don't expect you to come in Mm. and this goes right back to don lafontaine who we spoke about at the beginning who famously had his own studio at home and would be sent movie um trailers and he would just bash out a dozen movie trailers a day in a world always started in the same way yeah so um in the end with nike i didn't even need to re-record it because my or because we're in Hollywood, the auditions have to be very high quality. So my audition, which was only an MP3, it wasn't even a WAV or an AIF. I mean, it wasn't even a high-quality file. It was a compressed 256-kilobit MP3, and that somehow was good enough for Nike.
1: Well, it's partly because you're, you're, you're a voice out of the TV on the thing, aren't you? You're, you're, not, like, you're not the voiceover so much as a...
0: Correct. So, yeah, it, arguably it being compressed kind of worked. Yeah. But um, it was just funny to me that that was the biggest job I've done since I moved to America and I didn't even do the job. I just did the audition. Yeah, that's and, amazing. And it, now I looked at it the other day and it's up to like 60 million hits on mm. YouTube and it's their biggest ad of the decade because it is beautiful. I mean, not with anything to oh, do it, with it. me, the, just the editing. They've, they went through 10,000 hours of footage to find matchy-matchy mm. sequences so that you know, someone hitting a tennis ball becomes someone throwing a shot put and they somehow edit it together so that it becomes the same sequence in a split screen. It, it's a work of art.
1: Well, it's funny now we're having this this conversation. I am, I, it is occurring to me how different it has been over the time where I've either, if you, if you want a voice, I've like gone through some tapes and just go, okay, who's on Hobson's and you need a, a, a male voiceover or you go, oh, who was good on telly last night or do we want something funny? Is there Paul Whitehouse available, whatever. And then as we've got uh, more recently, I've been on the other side of the process you're talking about, but what I would do is I would feed in some adjectives to the process. I might go, you know, I want someone who sounds like they're 35, whatever it happens to be. And I will get sent down some sort of, you know, whether it's online or whatever, hundreds of voices of people who clearly are just standing in their kitchen or their front room or their own recording facility. And I'll go through them and I can tell within a couple of, you know, words. Okay, do I fast forward to the next one? Do I fast forward to the next one? I don't know if that's the case in, in England anymore. But, but it would surprise me if there wasn't. I mean, I know there are, there are probably a pool of fewer voices in England, but I, I kind of wonder if that's changed over there as well. Is it still is is it like it is in America or in England?
0: Well, home recording has changed massively, and this is the same for video as well as audio. You know, we used to have pro equipment and consumer equipment, and the two yeah. were separate. You know. So you'd have Digibeta in the pro world and you'd have VHS-C in the, in the consumer world. But now the pros are using the same kit as the people at home and vice versa. Mm. And it's the same with microphones and recording technology, USB mics and all sorts of stuff. So really now there's no excuse for anybody not to have a, a really decent recording setup at home. And, and the fact that you can shoot 4K 120 frames on your iPhone is it's nuts and it does look amazing. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean it meant there's a lot more amateur filmmakers. Yeah. And people really, you know, being very creative. And I just, like I love that Apple campaign shot on iPhone. Yeah. I just think it's genius. Because of the simplicity of it. And yeah. and, and the, the accessibility, it, the of the accessi- high quality. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Equipment to people. Yeah. But but with voiceover, you know, you've got to they don't want you to come in in America. They want you to do it from home. So even if you, even if you lived really nearby the agency or the studio or whatever, they'd still have you do it from home. Yeah. And these days we use software like Source Connect or IDPTL, I, sorry, IPD, IPDTL, um, where you dial into the studio and they just, they just don't want you in there. Even if you say, I'll oh, come in, I only live around the corner. No, <laughs> you stay there, it's fine. So we are expected to have a certain standard of large diaphragm mic, a really high-quality interface, and a you know, good pair of headphones. And, and, but most importantly, soundproofing. You know, a really yeah. good, not like the room we're in now, which is a gigantic like, vaulted ceiling, hence it's a little bit echoey, but you know, I have a really nicely soundproofed studio booth, so I'm able to communicate with studios all around the world now, and I presume I've not been in London for a few years, but I presume in London, and also the pandemic has forced people to yes. work remotely and and yeah. I always wanted to work remotely, and like some clients just wouldn't allow for it, whereas now they have to because of yeah you know uh, of of the germs. so you know here here we are, you know, maybe maybe remote working has been forced upon us, and it suits me, and I'm mm. sure it suits you too. You can write from anywhere, and I can record from anywhere. So let's just save the planet in the process, why not? That's
1: true, and it's funny, because I, I have, you know, maybe it's a couple of years ago, I did actual voiceover recording in in a boot, like the old-fashioned way, so we had the person there, and I found the ability to look at them and talk to them was, helpful. I felt it was helpful. I don't know if maybe the, the end result would have actually not made that much difference if, if we hadn't been there. But you're right, you know, here we are, we, we don't really have the choice of it. And I'm kind of, there are, there are points where we've done voiceovers and there are very small, nuanced things I'd like to have addressed. And it's been harder to do because I have this voiceover person and they'll, they'll pass on my comments to them. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me. I kind of want to be there in real time going, yeah, you know, well that okay, that was a suggestion. It didn't really work let's try it another way but instead what I'm doing is sending it through a third party and it's like uh, can I be bothered to to change it by 3% to get it to exactly the way I want it it's not really set up that way but if you're saying there's a direct the person who you're doing it for is on the line
0: with you yeah I mean I've done like I recently did a show for uh, Mattel called Cave Tales that I narrated it it as an animated um, series on YouTube for Mattel to sell you know they have products, cave tale, um, uh toys and so they did a, like a very clever actually, because you know on YouTube they have all these kids now film themselves mm. playing with the toys, right. so Mattel decided to actually do that themselves. So they've got people playing with the toys except they're puppeteers and it's properly animated and there's backdrops and a film That's score in it, and, and it was very, very clever. Anyway, so I narrated this. And when I recorded that, I recorded it from home. I had a director. They could see me, so we had it set up so that visually they could see me on Skype. A bunch of people were dialed in, or Zoom. A bunch of people were dialed in. I was recording a kind of isolated, independent recording, my end in high quality. They were recording their end. I had a director in one ear, a bunch of clients watching in New York and in England, and it was fantastic. It was such a great collaborative affair because you know collaboration really is the key to all of this yeah for you as a writer me as the voiceover if we can bring our collective skills together then we're going to have a better product yeah and so working in isolation is fine yes we can get the job done and there are certain like corporate reads and things that that's fine for you know i know how it needs to sound and if it's going to be used as an internal thing then you, you you know you just can deliver that kind of stuff But things that are creative and specific, like that cave tales thing, if you watch it, if you go on YouTube and search for it and watch it, you'll see how high quality it is. This happened at the beginning of the pandemic, and none of the performers, I was the narrator, but there was a bunch of people, guys and girls, American actors, who were all recording from home. Everyone is recording from home separately. We never met each other, and yet you watch it, and you're like, wow, that is beautifully made. And it, it's just a you know it's a kids TV series on YouTube.
1: Yeah, I mean that, yeah, and I think that that spirit of collaboration that brings us kind of full circle is to it's not just one person, but it's all the elements whether the engineer or the the writer or the other people you know on either side of the uh, of the glass. That's what makes the magic happen. Um, was there anything else you wanted to tell us that I haven't asked you about that the, that you secretly would love to advertising creatives in? particularly in England, to know?
0: Not really, I, other than just like, it's all about the writing, it you know? Is. It's just no matter what you do, whether we're talking about film scripts or, 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 or a few lines for a TV ad, like it is all about the writing. And get the, get the, get the grammar right, like care about it, care about language, because the English language is the greatest language in the world for a reason. It's because we can say the same thing in so many different ways. Mm. And I think it's very easy to get lazy with language. And, you know, voice artists will do what we're told. You know, you give it to us, we'll say it. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily right. And it's much easier to say something that's beautifully written than it is to try and, you know, cobble together some kind of desperate version of a badly written line.
1: Yeah, I can understand that. Well, um, it's been an excellent uh, chance to to catch up. It's it's been ages since we've spoken normally. Yes, I know.
0: We really should try and see each other more often, seeing as we live next door.
1: Absolutely. So I'm going to, instead of uh, cutting off someone from 5,000 miles away, go 50 feet to my right, back to my room and put this together. But uh, huge thanks, Anthony, and uh, speak to you soon. Thank
0: you, Ben. Thanks. If
1: this is a podcast, then watch Christmas.